John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. This is God's Word. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Amen. We thank God for his word to us this morning. Good morning, folks. If you have a Bible with you, do please open along to John's Gospel in the chapter 10 as we jump back in here together this morning. And just as you do that, allow me to pray with us. Our Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us and the testimony that it gives unto Jesus Christ. And so as we are confronted by him this morning, we ask that you would give us eyes that we might see the shepherd, and indeed that even this day we would be called the sheep of his fold. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, that we pray. Amen. Well, just over the Christmas period, my wife and I moved house, moved Kilkay, left Kilkay. That's not an easy thing to do and came to Hamilton's Bon, which is quite lovely. We're feeling sort of settled there now, but when you're from Kilkeel, you don't really know geography outside of Kilkeel. And so Hamilton's Bon, well, to me, it seemed like the middle of nowhere. But now that we're there, you realize the middle of nowhere is actually connected to everywhere. 
and you can get to Armagh, and you can get to Rich Hill, and the Portadown, and Tandragee, and Newry, and Margaret Hill, and all these other different places. It's actually very handy to get to them as well. And as we come to John 10, well, we're really coming to the middle of John's gospel, and yet we see it is connected to everywhere, to everything that has come before, and to everything that is going to come after as well. And so as we begin today, well, we want to begin by connecting it right back to the beginning, to going back to the very beginning of John's gospel, to chapter 1 and to verses 11 to 13, because these really serve as sort of controlling verses or as a guiding principle that steers the rest of John's gospel into what we're going to see in chapter 10. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Jesus came to his own. He came to the Jewish people, and yet they rejected him. However, there were those who did receive him, who believed in his name. Often the most unlikely of people, the disciples, this woman at the well, the, the man born blind, they believed in his name. And to them, he gave the right to become children of God, or in the language of John 10, the sheep of his fold. But that's really a pattern that we see time and again throughout John's gospel as we've been working our way towards chapter 10. People rejecting Jesus. Often it's the religious leaders or the crowds. But to these certain and specific individuals or very small groups, Jesus reveals his identity to them and they come then to believe in him. He has done great things. He has said great things. All of it testifying to who he is. All of it bit by bit revealing his identity until even a man born blind like that in chapter 9 can see that this is indeed the Christ. And so once more that question comes to the fore. Who is he really? Who is this man? Who are we dealing with here? What have we heard? What do we know? What do we believe about Jesus Christ. You can imagine that's the question that the Jewish people were asking themselves. The whole land would have been abuzz with it. And might I ask that question of you today as well? What have you heard? What do you know? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? And so as we come then to John 10, really three things for us to think about. First, misunderstanding the Messiah. Second, seeing the shepherd. And finally, confronted by Christ, misunderstanding the Messiah, seeing the shepherd, and confronted by Christ. So we pick up then with this misunderstanding in verse 22. We see there it's the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter, and here is Jesus walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And very often in John's gospel, the different events seem to occur and they're organized around the different feasts in the life of the people. And this is no different. It's the Feast of Dedication, also called the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah is maybe how we know it today. It was winter and well, that is a feast still celebrated today in December time, sort of before or even just coinciding with Christmas. We know there were many feasts for the Jews, but this was one we don't find in the Old Testament. It sort of emerged in that period between the Old and New Testament. It wasn't quite as big as something like Passover, but still you can imagine there's a bit of commotion in Jerusalem. And here's Jesus in the temple. We've seen him there before, and often that's where these confrontations with people take place. And a crowd of Jews are gathering around him. 
It doesn't specifically mention the Pharisees or the scribes or those religious elites who often come at Jesus. Very possibly they're there, but it's, it's a broader crowd. It's a mixed crowd. And they come to him with a question in verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's what they want. They want a yes or no answer here. Would he tell them plainly? Because the truth is, Jesus didn't always speak plainly, did he? We're familiar with his parables, with his teaching. Maybe we've heard them in sermons or we heard it in Sunday school. We've heard it all life long. We think we've a good idea what he's saying. But very often when Jesus spoke to people, they didn't quite grasp what he was initially saying to them. We think about chapter 3 in John. There's Nicodemus. He's the teacher in Israel. This is a man who knows his stuff. And yet when Jesus tells him that he needs to be born of the Spirit, he can't quite grasp what that means. When Jesus is at the well in Samaria and he says to this woman he can give her living water, she doesn't initially understand what it is he's offering to her. So he doesn't always speak plainly. But here they want the plain answer. They want the yes or no. Is Jesus the Christ? Would he just tell them that? So speak plainly. And that's the question here. It's of particular weight and significance at this time because it is that feast of dedication. And the feast of dedication, as we say, emerged between the Old and New Testament during those maybe about three centuries there or so. And it's to commemorate something called the Maccabean Revolt. And at the time, the land of Israel was evaded. It was oppressed by a man called Antiochus. And he had sort of overtaken the land, was oppressing the Jewish people, and had set up pagan sacrifices in the temple. So then there was this revolt led by a group of Jews, the Maccabean family. They overthrew Antiochus, and they purged the temple. They cleansed it of this, these defiling sacrifices and rededicated the temple. So you can imagine a feast to commemorate that. Well, it's a time of real patriotic spirit, real national pride in Jerusalem. And every nation really has those days. You know, the days when people will paint their face, the colors of their flag, whatever it might be, for the sake of controversy or avoiding controversy, we'll go to America, 4th of July, but other dates are available. (laughs) It's that sort of a thing. There's this world of patriotic spirit. So they're wondering, is Jesus the Christ? Because they've misunderstood the Messiah. Messiah and Christ, that's really the the same word. Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek. But they're wondering, is it him? Because in their minds, this Messiah, this Christ was going to come as this political and military leader. Someone whose kingdom was very much of this world and he was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors and he was going to restore the glory of Israel. And really, they couldn't conceive of the Messiah being anyone or anything else. And so they're wondering, is it Jesus? Is this the man? What have they heard? What do they know? What do they believe about the Messiah? And to us, what have we heard? What do we know? What do we believe about Jesus Christ? Is it that he is this political figure, this revolutionary, his teachings so shocking that the Romans had to execute him, had to put him down? to prevent any sort of revolt and keep control? Or is he some figure who comes to fulfill all our dreams, to grant us our every wish, like some sort of genie in the bottle? Well, those are grave misunderstandings of just who he is. So the Jews had this expectation of who the Messiah would be. But all that Jesus has said, all that he has done, does this fit, does this match with their expectation? 
Is he the one they are looking for? And so they ask him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And what does Jesus say in verse 25? Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. See, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has, as we said, very deliberately revealed his identity to individuals or to smaller groups. But he's never said the words, I am the Christ, when speaking to the crowds. And that's probably because of the misunderstanding that they had about who the Messiah was. On previous occasions, they had tried to take Jesus away and make him king. They'd also tried to stone him, and those are quite different reactions. But the hostility has been growing towards him here. He doesn't fit the expectation that they have of him. If he tells them plainly, I am the Christ, how will they react? What are they going to do? Because he's not the Christ they're looking for. So Jesus has revealed it to some, but not to others. Nevertheless, he shouldn't really have to say the words, I am the Christ, should he? Because he's given them enough that they ought to be able to figure this out, to work it out and understand it for themselves. First, there was John the Baptist who came, preparing the way, testifying about Jesus, pointing to Christ. Then Jesus himself has been saying things like he is the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd. Could they join the dots and get from there to Christ? Could they understand these things? What had they heard? What did they know? What did they believe? Even the works that Jesus had done, all these miracles, because Jesus didn't just do miracles for the sake of doing miracles. Feeding the 5,000, giving sight to the blind, healing the sick, turning water to wine, all of these things. They're not just miracles for the sake of it, but they're signs. These are marks of his authority, all testifying to his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. As verse 36 puts it, the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world. Well, they ought to be able to, to figure these things out for themselves. They have this testimony. Turns out they have heard it, and they should know it, but they don't believe it. Because whenever people are looking for an excuse not to believe something, well, they will find just such an excuse. It doesn't matter how much testimony or evidence is stacked against them. And so this is the case with these people here in Jerusalem, a grave misunderstanding of the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the Christ, but he's not the Christ they were expecting. He's the Christ they need, but he's not the Christ that they want. And so they cannot recognize this when he is before them. It's a grave misunderstanding of the Messiah. And let us not make that same mistake. And if we're to avoid such a mistake, well, how do we do that? Very simple, by seeing the shepherd. And that's the second thing we want to think about now, seeing the shepherd. Of course, the first half of John 10 is all about this shepherd. If you look up at verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And even there in verse 22, it suggests that the second half of the chapter is really happening quite close to the first chapter. These words, this talk about being the good shepherd, it should still be fresh in people's minds. As Jesus then says in verses 25 and 6, I told you and you do not believe. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So the Jews have really come to Jesus with a question of his identity, but he turns it back on them. Because for Jesus, the issue is not who is he, but rather who is they or who are they? Are they his sheep? And if not, why not? Because he came to his own 
and his own did not receive him. They are not his sheep because, well, they do not believe, they do not listen to him. Well, who then are his sheep? Well, John's slowly been building a picture of this throughout his gospel. In chapter 3, we're told that they are born of the Spirit. Chapter 6, it says that they are those whom the Father has given to the Son. And here now in chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So the sheep are those who are born of the Spirit, given by the Father, and who hear and follow the Son. And as we say, these people have misunderstood the Messiah. They cannot see the shepherd. Everything that Jesus says, they do not recognize his voice. They do not understand what he's saying because really it has not been given them by God. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's what we're seeing here. Jesus' sheep are the children of God, those who have been adopted by him, brought into his fold. They are those who hear the shepherd's voice, who are known by the shepherd, and who follow him. And it's a beautiful picture here of that salvation that Jesus offers. Because we see here that this salvation, to be counted among the sheep, to be counted as a child of God, to be a Christian, It's really not anything in ourselves. It's not any strength or power or wealth or wisdom or status that any of us possess. But it is simply this, as Jesus says in verse 28, I give them eternal life. It comes from him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he continues on in verse 29 as we see it there. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so we see that God saves us in Christ. He adopts us, but he keeps us also. Because from beginning to end, salvation belongs to the Lord. And just as the Father has given these sheep to his Son, so too the Son then gives them eternal life, that they shall never perish. And no one is going to snatch them from his hand. And even more than that, no one is ever going to snatch them from his Father's hand also. Of course, we believe in the Trinity. One God and three persons. It is the great, distinct, and distinguishing Christian doctrine. You come across different sort of cultic groups that maybe on the surface appear quite Christian. They can use Christian language. They come to your door. And yet, really, it's at this point, it's on who God is that they have departed from the true faith. And probably added a whole lot of other stuff there afterwards. But it's where we go wrong here. One God and three persons. And we admit that the Trinity is a hard thing to wrestle with. It's a hard thing to get our head around. And yet there is great reward for doing so. A great reward. Because if we see there in verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And we see here throughout John this beautiful unity and intimacy between the Father and the Son, this one shared united purpose of saving the sheep, of adopting a children for God. And the Holy Spirit has his role in that too also. Elsewhere he's called the Spirit of Adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And when a Christian receives the Holy Spirit, that is the sign and seal that they are a child of God belonging to the Father a sheep of Jesus' fold. 
And so the Gospel of John is just full of the works of the Trinity. We see it here in salvation. And we see it displayed very well in chapter 17. That's where that relationship of the Father and the Son is probably fleshed out the most. And it's a beautiful picture. John 17, if you want to flick forward. There's Jesus before his arrest, before his trial, before his crucifixion, praying to the Father. Conscious of the agony that awaits him, here the good shepherd prays for his sheep. John 17 and verses 11 and 12, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. So Jesus has given life to his sheep and he has kept them, but now he commits them to his Father's care. Why? Well, because his hour is coming. And when that good shepherd hangs upon the cross, when the good shepherd lies in the tomb, will the sheep be vulnerable? Will the sheep be exposed? Is that when the devil will strike? Is that when the thief will come to steal and kill and destroy? Well, certainly not, because they are held within the Father's hand, totally secure, because the Father is greater than all, greater than the armies of Rome, greater than the conspiracies of the Pharisees, greater than any enemy, greater than the devil himself and all his powers. And they're held in the Father's hand. They are held totally secure. We think of a father and his child, maybe in a moment of danger, maybe they they go to cross the road. And doesn't the father take his child's hand in his? And each has a hold of the other, but one of those grips is infinitely stronger than the other. And the child's security in that moment rests not on his hold of his father, but on the father's tender yet unbreaking hold upon his child. And that is the Christian's great confidence, the great foundation of our assurance. It's not just a promise, but it's a relationship also. That the God who saves us, the God who adopts us, he will keep us. And when the storm clouds gather in, that means he will not abandon us. And maybe we come here today and we come weak and weary and we come battered and bruised and in the week that's just been there, Maybe it's been months, maybe it's been years. You've just had it all. The tragedy, the anxiety, and sickness and suffering and all these pressures weighing down upon you. And you think, is, is this what it is to be a child of God? Surely the children of God ought not to experience these things. That's for the rest of the world. That's, that's not for me. Well, that's prosperity gospel, isn't it really? It's not Christ's gospel. Christ's gospel tells us we will face those things. We will endure them. And yet that even when we find ourselves in that place where the darkness will not lift, we can endure it with this assurance of a new status we have as the children of God, a status that does not change, that does not depend on the shifting situations and circumstances of this life because it's God's promise to us and it is his relationship with us. So that even when I am unsure of tomorrow, I can still be sure of this that Jesus, my shepherd, holds me in his hand and in my father's hand also, and there I am secure. And there's really no sweeter thought than that. But it's a promise, it's a relationship only for Christ's sheep. So are we seeing the shepherd? Do we hear him? Are we known by him? Are we, are we following him? 
And maybe there is a doubt in your mind today. You wonder, am I really one of Christ's sheep? Am I belonging to that fold? Am I a child of God? And if you have those doubts, if you have those worries, come and speak to me. And speak to Alistair, speak to one of us. And if there's a longing in you today, because you know you're not a sheep, you know you're far off from Christ, but there's nothing you desire more than to see the shepherd. Again, come and speak to us, because there's nothing we would like more than to show you the shepherd. There has been this misunderstanding of the Messiah, but there are also those who see the shepherd, and that is a beautiful thing. What they hear and what they know and what they believe. Well, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the good shepherd of their souls. But those questions come to the fore again. Finally, as we come to our last point to consider, confronted by Christ. Because there is this being confronted by Christ that occurs here also. We see that everything that follows towards the end of the passage is really a response to Jesus words that he's just said, particularly verse 30. I and the Father are one. If we pick up there in verse 31 and and read on. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now, Jesus has faced the same accusation from them before back in chapter 5. They've also tried to to stone him before. This isn't the first time. But that's the accusation. Blasphemy. You being a man, make yourself God. Well, really, it's the very opposite that's happened here, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not a man becoming God because that's impossible. But this is God who took on flesh, who became man, and who now stands before them. But they can't recognize him. They haven't the eyes to see him. But here he is. He stands before them. And they want to stone him. They want to stone their very Savior. So what happens next? Well, before they can stone him, verses 34 to 6. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father loves and has consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? You notice there Jesus says, Your law and the scripture cannot be broken. Well, that's because, of course, the Jews held the scripture in the highest regard. No one's going to question its authority. What does Jesus do? Well, he makes his case by appealing to Scripture. He quotes Psalm 82 in verse 6 there, you are God's. But really what's happening here is Jesus is making this case from Scripture because he's saying, if you want to argue with me, if you want to contradict me, well, I've got Scripture on my side. And if you're going to make a point to the contrary, you're going to have to compromise on what you yourselves believe. They're not going to do that. So what is the case that Jesus is really making? Well, he goes to Psalm 82 And it's an argument sort of from the lesser to the greater. Psalm 82 says of these human judges, you are gods. Small g, of course. But really, we know that judgment ultimately belongs to God. And yet we have human judges. And these human judges, whenever they make a judgment, they are on a vastly, vastly smaller scale exercising an activity that belongs to God. 
In some sense, therefore, it is appropriate to call them gods, again, little g. But if it is appropriate to call these mere humans gods, how much more appropriate is it then to call the one whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world the Son of God? Well, of course it is. That's absolutely appropriate, and that's the case that Jesus is making here. And he goes on in verses 37 and 38 to tell them, look, if you won't believe the words that I'm saying, at least believe the works that you have seen. Because again, they're not just miracles for the sake of it, but they're signs testifying to who he is, to his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. Will they believe his works? Well, we see with these crowds that they won't dispute that Jesus has done these works, but they do dispute the power by which he's done them. There in verse 21 of chapter 10, they ask, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, of course not. To open the eyes of the blind, to, to heal the sick, to even raise the dead, as we'll see in chapter 11. Those are not things that a demon could do. It belongs to the power of God. And here is the very Son of God displaying that power, doing his Father's works. Well, how did they receive this? It's a bit interesting in, in verse 39. You see there how they wanted to arrest him. Previously, they wanted to stone him. Now they're looking to arrest him. We might think there's been a bit of a de-escalation here. Are they kind of listening to what Jesus is saying? Are they giving some thought to it? We don't really know. And the main thing to take about this is that Jesus seems to escape, as he has done before when they tried to make him king, when they tried to stone him, they tried to arrest him. It happens time and again. Jesus is in the middle of these great crowds. They want to grab him. They want to grasp hold of him. And yet he seems to just slip through their fingers. I can't imagine he just vanished, went invisible. That would have kicked up a fuss, wouldn't it? He didn't part the crowds as Moses parted the Red Sea. Yet somehow he seems to just get away. How does he do it? We don't really know. The only thing the Bible tells us is his hour had not yet come. Jesus says it himself in verses 17 and 18. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. His hour had not yet come. Because when Jesus goes to the cross, he goes there freely and willingly. And until that hour comes, the Romans, the Jews, Judas, the devil himself, none of them can bring any harm to him. But Jesus escapes them. He leaves Jerusalem and he goes out back across the River Jordan, as we see there just in those final few verses of 40 to 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. And the important thing for us to notice there is in verse 41. It says that John did no sign. That's John the Baptist. John didn't do signs. He didn't do the miracles that Jesus did. But John came to prepare the way, to testify to Christ, to point people to him. And what was that testimony? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The people in Jerusalem, they had seen many signs. They'd heard everything Jesus said. They were confronted by Christ, but they would not receive him. And yet here are people who have seen no signs. They've simply heard this testimony about Jesus and many believed 
in him there. It might cast our minds forward to chapter 20 and to Thomas, that doubting disciple. And after the resurrection, Jesus appears to all his disciples except for Thomas. And the disciples are trying to tell Thomas, we have seen Jesus. And he won't believe it. He doesn't believe that testimony. He demands a sign. Thomas says, unless I see the marks of the the nails in his hands and I, I put my finger in those marks and place my hand in his side, I will not believe until Jesus comes and gives him the very sign that he demands. And in that moment, all Thomas can say is, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him there in John 20 and 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, that's the very people we see here at the end of chapter 10. They have not seen, but they have believed. So what is the response then when we are confronted by Christ as we have been today? Do we doubt? Do we close our eyes and ears? Or like Thomas, would we worship him? And some people do demand a sign. They say, if only God would give me a sign, I would believe. If he would but speak to me in that booming voice, write a message in the sky. If God would stop hiding, just reveal himself to me. Appear, give me some sign, then I would believe. But if John 10 has told us anything, it's that God can give plenty of signs and still people will not receive him. But of course, God isn't hiding. He has revealed himself. All creation proclaims his glory, but supremely he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And he's given us his word, his word that testifies to him. Come back to John 20 and the very end of it. John tells us why he wrote this gospel, the very purpose for it. All these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what have we heard? What do we know? What do we believe about this Jesus? Have we misunderstood the Messiah? Or are we now seeing the shepherd? Because all of us today have been confronted by Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do come before you now, having been confronted by Christ. And yet maybe we come with misunderstanding. Or maybe now we do see the shepherd. For all that we have heard, for all that we know, Lord, might we believe in Jesus' name that we would see the shepherd that we would have life in him, that we would know the adoption as your sons and daughters, to be sheep of his fold. Whatever misunderstanding is there, O Lord, take it from us and give us eyes to see and hearts that would love the good shepherd for all that he has done for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.